Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I shouldn't believe in love at first sight, but I think I do because that's what it felt like. And I've never felt it before. Why do you think you shouldn't believe in love at first sight? Because it doesn't feel like a smart thing to believe in. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Love Lives, a podcast from The Independent where I, Olivia Fetter, will be talking to different guests each week about the loves of their lives. Today, I am delighted to be joined by one of my favorite authors and podcasters, Caroline O'Donoghue. She is the New York Times bestselling author of Promising Young Women, Scenes for Graphic Nature and the All Our Hidden Gifts series. She's also the host of the wonderful Sentimental Garbage podcast and her latest novel for adults, The Rachel Incident, comes out in June. I absolutely adored it and I can't wait to ask Caroline all about it today as well as hearing about the loves of her life. So let's get started. Welcome, Caroline. Hello, Olivia. It's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So I have been a fan of yours for a while, as I said before. Um, I think I think I might have messaged you after your first novel came out, Promising Young Women, which I just loved. It oh, came out a few really years nice. ago. When did that come out? I came out in 2018. I just loved it. And I just loved The Rachel Incident as well. So could you start us off by telling us what The Rachel Incident is about? Sure. The Rachel Incident is a... It's, it's a Strangely enough, it's a period novel set, <laughs> set in 2010, <laughs> um, which is weird to think that like now as millennial women, we're kind of old enough to look back yeah, on our youth weird. as being of a time period. Yeah. And the kind of defining things of this time period is that it's, um, you know, this character called Rachel, she's 21 years old. She's living in Cork City, which also happens to be where I'm from. And uh, she's working in a bookshop. It's kind of the... Um, the financial crash of 2008 has really started to trickle down to her and the people she loves. Her parents uh, are going broke. The bookshop that she's worked in all through uni, it's like, you know, the Kindle is coming, book sales are down. It all seems quite bleak. And she's really, um, you know, for a young person, she's old before her time at the beginning of the novel. And um, then she meets James, who is a Christmas temp who is made permanent by sheer force of charisma. And um, he is a, a closeted guy, uh, originally from the UK, who is now living in Ireland. And these two meet each other and fall deeply in love, um, a deep platonic love that lasts the rest of their lives. And um, what happens next really is that this, their first kind of bonding ritual, their kind of, their blood packed thing is like every, every best friendship needs that one big crazy act to solidify its longevity. Um, it is, uh, he, James realizes that Rachel has a massive crush on her English professor, this man called Dr. Byrne. Um, and he's, and Dr. Byrne has a very unreadable <laughs> book coming out that, um, it's like an academic book that's trying to have crossover appeal, which is mm. the worst kind of book. <laughs> and, um, uh, is trying to be like the Simon Schwarma of Ireland, but is failing. And, um, anyway, they, they put on a kind of a book launch in the shop and they think that they, he's, she's going to like seduce Dr. Byrne at this book launch. And then what ends up happening at this book launch 
uh, is very different to what they expected and it ends up uh, sort of propelling the novel in a totally different direction of sort of friends and lovers and betrayal mm. and unpaid internships and um, everything that we associate with our early 20s, I think. Yeah, it's great. It really captures that kind of spirit of, of being in your early 20s and particularly, like you said, at that time, like it's so weird to call it a period piece, but you're so right. Yeah. It very much is. Um, but I know that, so you originally started writing a different book yeah. um, and you were on deadline for that and that's how, kind of how this story came to be. So tell us a little bit about what happened there and how you ended up shifting from one book to another? Yeah, so it's this thing where, so I um, wrote two novels novels for adults with uh, my publisher Virago and I was contracted to write a third one. And um, in the meantime, I got swept up in doing a trilogy for young adults. It's kind of my other career. Um, and I love it, but it's it's so rewarding, but it's also so demanding because when you're writing a trilogy, um, what people don't know is that you have to get all those books on the shelves within that first generation of the first set of young people who are reading it, you know? So something that you're interested in at 13, you may not be interested again at 16 or 17, you know? So you have to really grab that first generation. And so my adult publishers were very understanding about the fact that, you know, okay, you just need these sort of three or four years to work on that. We won't be too pushy, but you do always a novel. And so the novel I had outlined to them was um, very much a kind of a black mirror-y type thing, um, focusing very much on sort of commercial capital feminism, you oh, know, wow, yeah. something I think you and I are probably very familiar with and has yeah, like bumped yeah. off the edges of and I felt was a real defining thing of the sort of, um, you know, the late sort of Me Too and the post Me Too era up until now. Um, and I worked in an office that was like a, you know, built itself around that ideology that something can be feminist and commercial at the same time. And I wanted to really explore that using a kind of a black mirror type of framework. And I worked on this for years and I was 75,000 words into this novel. And um, I cared very much about the characters and I really had it all plotted out and everything. And then um, a bunch of things happened. One of which was, I think, you know, if you've ever you've probably had this experience where a piece of work that you keep picking up and putting down loses momentum really easily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's just, you know, often you can get that momentum back by just going on holidays with the book kind of thing, you know, going to a writer's cabin and really yeah. focusing on it. Um, and what was happening with me was like the momentum was not coming back because I realized that there is a type of book that I really enjoy that is not my destiny to write. That's so interesting. I've been I've been speaking to a lot of writers about that as well, about how, you know, not it's weird because I think you're often told to write the thing you want to read. But actually yeah. it's sometimes it's like, I want to read books that I could never possibly write. And that's part of the appeal. That's sometimes. part of it, right? Like yeah. so I think what I wanted to write was the kind of um, millennial mean girl sort mm. of thing yeah. of like mean girl having mean thoughts yeah. and uh, fuck society <laughs> you know? and like that kind of thing that I love it when like an Atessa Marshveg does yeah. it but it's just not my destiny yeah, 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 thing. Yeah. Um, and like I'm quite like a buoyant person and um, writing that sort of prose 
was really depressing me. Like it was re- like on top of it being a depressing landscape anyway. Like this was February 21, so it was like that second year of the pandemic where Christmas had just been cancelled and like the weather was awful and it was so cold and everyone was so just depressed. And you're writing this quite depressing book, not not depressing in itself, but like depressing characters, I guess. Yeah. Um, was just bombing me out and then the third thing on top of that was I realized that like a novel what that central message was essentially oh no the phones (laughs) (laughs) was so like not the vibe yeah (laughs) it was like like literally technology was the only thing holding our entire society together for that two-year space like we just had this like global mass vaccination that was largely organized by like you know alerts on your phone and like that kind of and like that was kind of amazing and like you people were staying in contact with their families through zoom and doing the zoom quizzes and it was the the, the sort of society was being held together by technology and it just felt really inelegant and the wrong time to write a novel that's like oh no the phones oh no the technology i love that cell oh no the phones (laughs) but it does really capture i know what you mean yeah yeah and so i sort of like it was like okay my publisher was it was february my publisher was like we really do need this by may you know (laughs) we so i was like so I sort of set myself the task I was like I have to write a novel that a of all makes me really happy and b of all um I have literally no excuse to open a single google chrome tab to sort of research because that was another thing that went on went wrong with oh no the phones yeah was I was constantly going on these research rabbit holes because with stuff like tech there's always more to research and you can get lost if you want to um, and so, so I was like, okay, I'm going to set it during a time and a place that I know inside and out. And that for me was 2010 in Cork, which was the year before I emigrated. And I wanted to, to get back to a really happy, hopeful time, which was when I was living with my best mate, Ryan, in a crappy little house and we were working in retail, you know, and that just became the basis of what was a real savior for me. Like it was such, it was so much fun to write. There's a lot of dramatic, upsetting things that happen in the book, but ultimately, it's I I I I hope it's joyful read. Yeah, you know? it is. I think reading it, you can really tell that this is something you had a lot of fun writing, yeah. and you can imagine that it came quite easily to you because it does all just. It's very very snappy and sharp and very like a lot of social commentary, but it does feel very natural, mm. and it feels very much like having listened to your podcast and you know read your work before. It feels very much like it. It's. It is your natural kind of voice and yeah. your kind of like quippy tones and stuff. It's great. And I think everyone who's a fan of your work will love it. Um, I want to ask you about one of the themes in the book without giving too much away. But because for anyone who's read Promising Young Women and, you know, this book as well, there is a kind of a parallel in terms of like age gap relationships that yeah. you write about and power dynamics and not necessarily even between men and women, but just that whole difference of, you know, when you are someone younger who is going out with someone much older than you, or even if you just have a crush on someone much older than you, like um, Rachel does on her professor. And I think that's such an interesting area to explore. So I was I was intrigued to see you returning to it in this kind of different way in this yeah. book. What is it about that that you find fascinating and ripe for fictionalizing, do you think? It's so interesting because uh, when I wrote Promising Young Women, uh, I was 26 mm-hmm. and um, I was full of like rage like and and also I wanted you know many feelings but rage was a huge part of it and it was like everything that I had sort of seen in sort of 
corporate creative London sort of things and like the kind of um, sexual dynamics that I saw at play in all these offices I had worked in. And um, I was quite rageful about that. And the um, the sort of romantic interest slash antagonist of promising young women is like, he's quite literally monstrous. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like it's borrowing from like horror literature in a very like deliberate way. And um, I really had fun with that. And like, it was a great thing of of kind of picking apart those sort of gothic vampire type tropes and uh, working with that. But then by the time I got to Rachel, um, I'd, I'd lived a lot more life. Um, not a lot more, I mean like six years more life, but in, in, in that, in this time going like 26 and 33, it felt like a very different age, <laughs> you know, you'd grow a lot during that time. Um, and I was, I kind of realized that like, even though Fred Byrne from the Rachel incident and, um, Clem from Promising Young Women, they're both men in positions of power who are kind of abusing their positions of power in order to get sort of drink from the fountain of youth. But Fred, I feel like my attitude toward the character had changed. Like I have quite, he's not the same as Clem, but it's like, he, he's just a guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's just like, it's just like, what it is. he's a human man who like is sort of crumbled under the weight of just A of all being closeted and, um, you know, being a man of a certain generation who's closeted, who feels like he's missed the boat on sort of being able to be a queer man because he just, I feel like a lot of people who were out, certainly in Ireland when I was growing up, the only people I knew of who were out, and maybe you were the same, were people who didn't have any choice but to be out because they're, they couldn't pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and Fred yeah. is somebody who can pass, so therefore yeah. has never been forced to come out and so has, in a sense, been living a lie for a long time. And the delicacy of that and the, the sadness of that mm. and the kind of, you know, that that's, um, I, I felt a lot of empathy for him, even though he does horrible things. Mm. Um, and so I think the main differences between those two relationships is my sort of yeah. maturity, I think. You, you know? can really tell, though, from reading it. And it's interesting what you said about writing the first book from a place of rage, because I'm also now wondering if my, because I'm writing my first novel now, yeah. and I'm like, there's a lot of rage motivating <laughs> yeah, this story. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, like, as a female novelist, your first piece of work maybe rage because I mean you know we as women have so much rage in us anyway that we're never allowed to express and constantly told to kind of yeah kind yeah. of keep keep quiet and keep to ourselves I wonder if when you are writing a novel as a woman that's like your first outlet to be like this is all my anger and this is what I have nice. to say that I feel like I can't express in my real life because no one will let me and I can't express in non-fiction because you know I'll yeah. get criticized for it it's so interesting I think there's a lot because like um uh it's like we've all everyone in the world has had an idea for a novel or a movie right yeah, 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 like yeah. everyone everyone's capable of coming up with like a pretty good plot yeah. kind of thing but it's like what are the things in your subconscious or in your emotional life that nudges you toward needing to write this story and like i think the propeller has to be a very strong emotion and i think if you've never written a novel before maybe rage is the, the one that will do it you yeah. know yeah. and as you get further along in your career it can simply be like extreme curiosity or yeah. affection or 
whatever yeah, but like maybe yeah. to get that first one over the line because it's mm. such a weird thing to do to write a novel like to like just come out with like I think I'm capable of inventing a whole landscape and many people in it and it will be important yeah. <laughs> and people will care yeah, people it. will care and pay yeah. 16.99 in the hardback <laughs> for it it's a nuts thing to think about yeah. yourself it's so grandiose and self-important yeah, yeah, yeah. so maybe rage has to be the propelling emotion yeah it's so interesting um, and the central relationship in the Rachel instant as you kind of mentioned is this platonic friendship between a straight woman and a gay man um, and I know you kind of drew on some of your own experiences you mentioned that you lived in a kind of flat in Cork with your friend Ryan mm-hmm. who you thank in the back in the, of the book and the acknowledgements I always read the acknowledgements oh, yeah. <laughs> I read too I feel very strongly about acknowledgements that they're a short story at the back of the they book are. you know they often are and um, when they're not treated like that I get very annoyed yeah. there's like a list of names yeah. I'm just like that's not a story no, <laughs> there's always so much going on there um, so I wanted to ask you about how you go about drawing from real life stories in your fiction because you know, it is something that is constantly weaponized against female writers and constantly told, you know, oh, so this is basically a biography or this is basically about you. So how do you go about navigating that while also still pulling from real things that have happened? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot because um, I don't think The Rachel Incident is any more or less autobiographical than any of the five novels I wrote previously. Yeah. And three of those novels were supernatural fantasy for teenagers. But I was, I was, I've drawn so much from my own teenage life in those books that they, they function as memoir just as much as The Rachel yeah. Incident does, just as much as prominent. You know what I mean? Like you've never, you're always drawing from somewhere kind of thing. Um, and I, th- I think that like, truth in novels is a bit like alcohol and wine where it's like 13% is probably too little yeah (laughs) 15% is about right 16% 16% of people go nuts <laughs> where it's like 16% of people are like what's true what's yeah. real we're drunk on this amount of That's like so funny of yeah. like truth you've given us and you're like it's really not that much more than normal yeah <laughs> like, you know I because I, I think about this a lot as well and I think the thing that is true mainly would be the emotional truths because exactly and yeah. that's yeah. not necessarily saying this you know this factually happened but of course, if you're writing a story and you're coming at it from a place of drawing from things that have happened to you, it doesn't necessarily mean you're writing exactly what happened to you. But yeah. it's about the feeling that you had and the and the the reaction that you had and the kind of sensory experience. And, you know, obviously that's a really, really good place to draw from for a story. Yeah, yeah, true, totally. And like the, so the, 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 the plot of The Ridge Lincent is totally invented. Yeah. And I think... I think that the character of Rachel, she's a lot of like biographical things in common with me in terms of like when and where we were born and when we moved to London. But I, I think of us as being very different people. Um, but the emotional stuff of like, that's how we lived. Like we, we went out that much. We went to those bars. We did this kind of thing. This is sort of how I acted with men at that time kind of thing. Yeah. That sort of like soupy of like experience and um, ambience, I think is probably yeah quite true to life. Um, before we move on to talking about the loves of your life, which I'm really excited to ask you about, um, I have to talk to you about Sentimental Garbage. Okay. Podcast. I mentioned at the top, I just love it so much. I do too. It's so great. <laughs> um, and I know that obviously during the pandemic, you did these episodes with Dolly Alderton about Sex and the City. And they, and they all sat there and they were like, 
Can you remember how we resolved yeah. the Miranda thing? Oh, I think that they. she went out to Charlotte and said, oh, I'm moving to LA, I'm in love. And they all just went, <laughs> yeah, I think that, probably no, not no, no, just yeah, yeah. that, but I think we can just do that. Yeah, but it needs to be done by Thursday, so <laughs> let's just get it over the wire. The podcast was already pretty popular, but when you did those yeah. Sex and City episodes, it kind yeah. of took it to another level, I think, because it was, A, something that, people so desperately wanted to kind of absolve themselves into at that time, like that really fun criticism of like this cult mm-hmm. show that no one's ever really done before. I don't think there'd ever been anything like, I mean, I mean, I know people have done podcasts about Sex and the City yeah. before, but I think the way that you guys did it was quite unique. And it, Thank you. Came, it came and it came at a really, really good time when people, like I said, really wanted that. But I wanted to ask you about how it felt to have that level of attention and that mm. level of listenership and engagement and then you know make like the demands that they were then making of you afterwards to be like can you please do it for this show and do it yeah. for this show and kind of how that how that kind of felt and how you navigated that it's so fascinating because I think I mean I'm not I'm not a dummy in that like I knew that you know when me and Dolly had this plan to do kind of a mini series and we had it in the We've been talking about it for such a long time. Like we came, we were on holidays at some point, and we came up with a phrase like talking about Sex and City for the Great American Novel, truly, and that just made us laugh as a sentence yeah. so much. <laughs> um, but but like it, then it obviously was the pandemic that took it. You know, we literally had the time to spend yeah. like three or four hours a week on the headphones. Um, but I knew that like, obviously you know that when your friend Dolly Alderson is going to sign on to do a little miniseries with you that way more people are going to listen to it because she's like a phenomenon you know and also the um the high low had just finished yeah. and so people were like desperate <laughs> they yeah. were like they had this sort of like weekly fix of dolly for years and then it was gone and then suddenly she was back talking so, so much like, like yeah. so that really played into yeah. it as well and so and even though i was like it's like I, I was like i don't really care about that stuff because you know she's one of my best friends mates and she's like one of the most fun people to talk to in the world and um there was still always a part of me that was like uh a little bit a little bit nervous because i'd never gotten that much attention before there was a kind of a slight nerviness that like she would be Barbie and I would be Skipper kind of <laughs> which is kind of true but also it's fine <laughs> she would be Barbie and I'd be Skipper <laughs> yeah. and then um and so there was a lot of like it was like a lot of tension but it was like really nice because like I feel like I have something I think like it's so nice because there was all this um all this content that got absorbed and during the pandemic uh, that changed a lot of artists' lives. Like I remember, this is like a horrible comparison to make and I'm not saying I'm this person, but I remember seeing an interview with Anya Taylor-Joy and she was like, yeah, no one knew who I was. And then the Queen Gambit came out during the pandemic. And then suddenly like a year later, I'm out and like people are people are out again and then people are running up to me in the street and she was like so this fame the fame happened in like a capsule where it didn't bump off of me and now suddenly it is bumping off of her and it's such it, there was no trickle down of like yeah. slow flat fans it's like going into Love Island and coming out and having yeah those, yeah it's like that it's just like that <laughs> it's just like that and it's, it is a bit like that yeah, is, yeah. in that um yeah that like I went into the pandemic as like somebody who was like you know, pretty like well reviewed yeah. um it, it has somewhat of a following but like not you know 
not a, a character in people's lives to then coming out of the pandemic being a character in people's lives and having people coming up to you on, your, on a night out and do people come up to you on night yeah <laughs> and they want to talk about sex and city yes that's quite sweet <laughs> it's really sweet yeah and then I remember when it was over when when we finished the miniseries I remember thinking like oh now I'm gonna get I'm gonna carry on and do other things and um talk to other people but I'm just gonna get all these one-star reviews saying bring back Dolly you know but that never actually happened you know um they stuck around for skippers so. <laughs> I mean it's great I, lo- I love every episode and I love the the breadth of subjects that you talk about there was one just on the word like yeah, and then, yeah. you know, you've done all sorts of, it, it's so interesting, the kind of, because the premise is like talking about, I'm now very conscious of using the word like, is yeah. <laughs> always talking about things that we're normally made to feel sort of ashamed of for liking and enjoying and the kind of, yeah. and so, but it's interesting how far you can take that subject matter. And there's so much that Totally. Like after I, we did Sex and City, I was like, what if everything could be a great American novel? Yeah, like, but, but it is. And like the yeah. way that you talk about every subject, it, it's it's really fun to apply all of that kind of like critical analysis. The one you did recently on um, Midnight's, the Taylor Swift album. Yeah. <laughs> that one, I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. That was great. If anyone watching this has not listened to that, you definitely should. I was afraid that one was like a bit unhinged. <laughs> I was like, maybe like, that's why I loved it so yeah. much. No, people really responded really well because I think people do have their unhinged feelings about Taylor Swift generally. Yeah, they do. Uh, <laughs> and me included. But like, um, the, yeah, I remember thinking that like, because it was the level of like, when we talked about Second City, we did a lot of like fantasy role play yes. of like, yeah, here's yeah, the kind yeah. of like podcast Jack Berger might have. Mm. But then I was really conscious when me and Jen were talking about Taylor Swift that we were talking about real people. Mm. And like that feels like that hits a bit different. And yeah. I, I don't know. And so I was a bit nervous that we came across like deranged. <laughs> but, <laughs> but actually it was great. And I think it's a great episode. No, it was great. And also like, yes, she is a real person, but what you're you're talking about like Taylor Swift, the phenomenon, the yeah. kind of cult figure, you know, you're not talking about Taylor Swift, the girl who went and had a cocktail with exactly. last week. Like it's kind of the the culture around her, of which there is a huge one. And I and I think also with Taylor, there's this thing as well of like um because she's our age and she's grown up alongside us and we've seen her have these relationships, but we've also had relationships like that. Yeah alongside her so we can we we sort of we get it we can project our own experiences of love mm-hmm. and romance and disappointment onto her and her and she creates she provides a really great canvas for that which is why i think people get more obsessive of her than anybody else yeah definitely i think i mean i could just I, i'm gonna stop because i will talk to you about taylor Swift. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I do it, yeah. it's a bit at the end of mastermind but she says you know nobody wanted to play with me as a little kid yeah so i've been scheming like a criminal ever since and I just think there's everybody on earth can relate to that feeling. Do you know what I mean? It's so the way that she can do extreme specificity while also being so enormously relatable is um yeah. real skill. It's crazy. <laughs> this is Taylor Swift, keep an eye on her. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Right, I'm going to move on to talk about the loves of your life. So I'm obsessed with your first one. I don't <laughs> think we've had anything quite like this before. So tell us why you have chosen pickles. Pickles. <laughs> pickles, things that are pickled, vinegars, vinegary things, just like anything that sort of hurts your mouth. I remember being actually one of the first things I bonded with Dolly about. What, pickles? Pickles, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. And yeah, I remember for, the, for like some birthday, she just got me a big jar of them. And um, uh, yeah, I just find that um, uh, you know I've been a writer, a full-time novelist for a while now, and um, you really need if you, as anyone will tell you, you do like I think writers love to hide behind this veneer of like, oh, I'm just a mess, and somehow things get done, yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> it's either one or the other. They either hide behind the veneer of like, here's my bullet journaling, here's my post-it wall, yeah, here's yeah, my yeah, yeah. use of a clean office, how I get things done. Or they're like, I'm a mess, I don't even know how. But we really know that the truth is somewhere in the middle, yeah. that like most people have a kind of a, a pretty structured day and a, a good internal sense of like what can pick them up or, or lift them out of a slump. And for me, the thing that always lifts me out of a slump is just nailing an entire jar of cornichons. <laughs> you wrote, I, I'm going to have to quote what you wrote in the email when we asked about your loves. You said that um, pickles, pickles really help your writing process and that they are for you what cocaine was for Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. tell, me, tell me in your writing process, in your typical writing day, how does that look and where where exactly do the pickles fit in? Where at what point oh, do you find yourself reaching for them? Question. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. When I'm actively writing a novel or a script, um, the the days are quite structured. So um, I try and get up. I try to like hit my desk at the, around the same time where my partner is hitting his. So we're not like crazy out of sync. You know, you want to live. You want to run a house. You know, um, and so it tends to be coffee from around the corner in the morning. We go together. You know. Uh, it is nice <laughs> it's nice you know, me and him and the dog go for a coffee in the morning um take a walk around the block and then we're both at our desks by just after nine um and then you know work till sort of one-ish go for a proper walk with the dog come back um and maybe get an hour of work done and then that kind of thing like okay now i just have nothing to live for <laughs> nothing to think about and my brain doesn't work yeah. and so I think I might be like allergic to the pickles is what, what's happening <laughs> is that <laughs> so that's one of the big they can't it's either right. it's either a jar of cornichons yeah. or a family bag of space raiders um <laughs> whichever is more to yeah. hand 
Um, and I just like just really like standing up in the kitchen, just really trying to feel something. But it's like my brain gets hot, my face gets warm. I can like feel things like really picking yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And like I've never been a cocaine person, but like it's the same, it's the same vibe. <laughs> yeah, it all gets jittery. And then I can I I, I can get about ninety minutes of like creative work done wow. off a bag of space rations. Maybe you are a bit allergic. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so when it like when it comes to the, like a deadline time where like I really just have to get something over the line and particularly those three years when I was writing four years when I was writing the um YA stuff which yeah. is so deadline heavy um yeah pickles were just they really became a coping mechanism <laughs> during that time so your second love is a type of relationship so yes. I'm really pleased you've chosen this because we haven't had anyone chose choose anything like this before so yeah. tell us why You've chosen monogamy and what you meant when you described yourself as a boyfriend girl. So this is something that I've had to genuinely come to terms with about my personality because I don't like it about myself. Um, but so I'm getting I'm getting married in the summer. Yeah, it's nice, Grace. And you know, me and me and Gav, we've been together almost 10 years, and like that's that's great. I'm delighted with that. But if I'm I'm delighted with him. And so and like the temptation was obviously to talk about him here but I knew that if I did he'd be very embarrassed by that you know um and I'd get it wrong as well and but um the when I kind of zoomed out I realized that I do have a bit of sort of shame because I started dating when I was 13 and I didn't stop (laughs) like I I like I went out with somebody for six months and then I went out with somebody else for six months and then I just kept leapfrogging and leapfrogging maybe it's probably why I love Swift so much because she's the same way <laughs> and like I'd say if I were to like it's uh, if I were to really go into the forensics of it like since I was 13 I would say I've probably spent about like less than a year of that time single oh, yeah. and I find that very unhealthy and weird <laughs> like and I think when I was younger a lot of it was to do with that I've I've thought about I've I've really tried to get to the end of this a lot like because I don't think of myself as being this like terribly codependent person like in in my relationship I'm we're very independent from each other you know it's not like that but I think part of it is coming from a big family and feeling like you always want to have somebody who's has to be on your side. Oh, interesting. Um, because my my next brother up he um is it so goes my sister who's ten years older than me my next brother down is eight years older than me and then next brother down is two and a half years older than me so I always wanted to hang out with him my next brother up but he always wanted to hang, <laughs> hang out the with older, yeah. the older brother and so it was always felt like I never had like my special friend yeah. kind of thing maybe that's, everyone feels that way in the family I don't know and so I think I always wanted to have my special friend like because even when I was six I made my best friend really quickly kind of thing and I was obsessed with her kind of thing and and then when I met Ryan um who inspired the Rachel incident I was obsessed with him and like I just get really obsessed with people yeah, yeah, yeah. and um uh but th- and then I but I also think that there was something happening and I, I think I mentioned this in the Rachel incident as well of like she, the, one of the reasons it's so attractive to her to have an affair with her uh, English professor is that she's incredibly sexually curious and she has a huge sexual appetite but she, she still is living in the sort of, you know, the leftovers of a very conservative society that is slowly changing into a liberal society. And like, that's that's a really confusing thing. And as an Irish woman, it's a really confusing thing because like, you know, a, a, a figure that, you know, is often quoted is that the last uh, Magdalene Laundry closed in Ireland in 1996. Mm-hmm. 
And the Magdalene Laundry was a place where women who were either single mothers or just, you know, deemed promiscu- promiscuous by their own family or their own community were incarcerated for like the rest of their lives, essentially, and um, made to sort of work for the state. And it was literally the church and the state conspiring to, you know, uh, I think even Louise O'Neill spoke about this on the podcast. So yeah, yeah, it's a huge yeah. piece of furniture that lives in Irish women's heads. 1996. 1996, yeah. Wow. Um, so those women are still alive. They're yeah, around, you yeah, know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It is crazy. And, um, and you know, the morning after pill was incredibly expensive growing up. I had to use it when I was about 17. And I remember like borrowing a tenner off loads of friends to buy it. And, you know, the, obviously the abortion thing is a big thing. Always knowing when you're getting ready to have sex in your life that, like, that could be a possibility. And But that's, like, all of that stuff that's quite specific to Ireland is also playing against a global cultural context that at that period, when we were teenagers, was all about, you know, your Paris Hiltons and raunch culture and celebrity sex tapes. So, like, I was, we were, it was, like, such a crossroads of female messaging to be an Irish woman during that time, growing up during that time. And I think how it manifested in me, on top of feeling like I was quite lonely in my family, was that I was incredibly sexually curious, but also really frightened of like, what would happen if I was promiscuous in any way. And how that manifested was just like, I I would have been so much happier, I think, if I just had casual sex. Um, but instead I I had to be under the sort of guise of being in a relationship all the time. So, and it would always be like really like, I mean, sometimes some, some lads were nice. Some lads are always nice. And some, some of them really weren't. And, and some of them were just like, basically no chemistry unsuitable kind of thing. Um, and, but uh, to to constantly have to be living under this guise of like, but it's okay because she's in a relationship, but like then almost becoming like famous among your group of friends being like, yeah, but you're going out with someone for eight months really intensely telling everyone you're the, they're the love of your life and then just moving on immediately. Like it's just, it's a bit laughable. <laughs> like it's mad. To go back to our friend Taylor. Let's just keep referencing her yeah, yeah. Like every few minutes because I'm so down with that. <laughs> and what's interesting is that like she's like, well, yeah, she's moved example. straight on. Like yeah. she's moved straight on to, yeah. um, and I think that, I mean, for her, it's probably a lot to do with feeling protected, I think. Yeah. I think, yeah, I don't know <laughs> why. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the feedback she's getting from her fans is yeah. that like, not necessarily even she's moved on too quickly. I think people got over that pretty quickly, but it's like the kind of man that he is. Yeah. I don't really know much about that guy, Matty. Matty Healy. Yeah, no, neither do I. But I know that people don't like that he's going out with Taylor and he's said various he's, he's like things. He's said a bunch of and, offensive things, yeah. yeah um, but it's like she's responsible for the things that he said more than he's responsible yeah. for the things that he said. Which says. is always the way, is that yeah. it somehow becomes her responsibility just right? because she's dating him, that suddenly she's going to come under fire because... And you, I think you see done. that happening a lot. Yeah. It's like, but it's like it's women true. being like the guardians of like some kind of moral state. Yeah. And I just think that hasn't changed and that's weird to yeah, me, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you've never been on online dating or dating apps or anything yeah. like that. So I want to ask how, because I've written a book about, you know, the perils of online dating. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask how you met your fiancé. So I was, I moved here in 2011. Yes, 2011. I spent, and I remember the feeling, I think I mentioned this on the podcast, but I was like, I remember the feeling of like, because Cork is such a small city and I'd lived there my whole life and gone to university there. 
that like all these people who I had dated or whatever for a long time were all converging on each other. Like I would see several of them on a night out and finding out that some of them were friends now. And I remember feeling like the claustrophobia God, of that. Yeah, that's terrifying. And there's like in, in the Rachel incident that she does like a terrible thing. Mm. Well, depending on your sort of point of view, a terrible yeah. thing. Um, and then she feels like the shame of that follows her around the place. And I've, I never did something like that, but I definitely mind a sense of like, I feel like I've conducted myself poorly with men and like maybe there's a kind of a narrative out there about me. And so leaving Ireland, I remember being like, oh, they're all dead. <laughs> like, they're all dead. Oh, that sounds like a line from the Taylor. Yeah. Like, oh, my ex is a dead. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like yeah, of being like, oh, I can just start again in a new country. Yeah. And um then I, yeah, I, 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 I actually did date around a little bit um, here, but it was uh, again pre-internet dating. I mean, there was OK Cupid or whatever, but that was, it was still very much the preserve of like people in their thirties. Yeah, 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 yeah. When you were in your early twenties in 2011, 12, here you still met people at bars and at work, which I think is cute. Yeah. Um, I, I, I then got a serious boyfriend for about three years. He was a lovely man, um, and then I started working in advertising, and on. The first day of the job, Gav um, took my photograph for the my staff ID, and that's so sweet. I know, and um, I remember I was in this like studio or whatever, and just thinking like, oh, oh my god, like this is. It was just a really I. Just, I don't I I I shouldn't believe in love at first sight, mm. but I think I do, because that's what it felt like, and I've never felt it before, and what's sort of depressing is that I think it was quite one-sided <laughs> um, and why do you think you shouldn't believe in love at first sight because it doesn't feel like a smart thing to believe in <laughs> and I'm sort of like Fair enough. <laughs> yeah true <laughs> and it feels like the kind of thing that legitimizes a, a lot of poor choices yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. not a great degree of self-knowledge or knowledge about Believing the world in fairy tale narratives yeah. and yet um, yeah. and so then um, I and, and well, then um, I went back to my desk feeling quite sort of shaken up or whatever. And then I got a, a phone call at my um, my desk on the beep. And he was like, hey, sorry um, to bother you, but I, I wiped the memory card by mistake. Could you come back up? And then we went back up and we had a chat for another hour or so. And then oh. he, he sends it a minute. He was like, oh, it was bollocks. I just <laughs> wanted to have a That's chat. That's so nice. But this is why I always yeah. like hearing how people meet because it's never like, even though like, yes, it's lovely, you're getting married and you know, it's obviously worked out for the best. Like yeah. it's never a straightforward path no. to that. It's always like a wiggly road. And, and you know, I'm single and I, you know, I'm always complaining about how hard it is to date right now. So I'm always interested to hear other people's yeah. stories because yeah. it gives me, gives me faith, gives me optimism. And it's just like, it's, it's, I guess, similar in career journeys in a way, like you see someone at the top of their career and you're like, okay, but how did you get to that? And it's always a wiggly route. And I think with relationships, it's, you know, it's not so much wiggly as it's more like, you know, it's all right? over the place. And it's, 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 it's even whatever about suitability. It's also about getting like timelines to match exactly. up. Exactly. You know I mean? It's timings. And actually, when you think about the chances of A, falling in love with someone who loves you back. Yeah. But falling in love with someone at a time when that you're single and when they are single and you're yeah. both in the headspace where you want to date. Like there are so many yeah. things that And not just to... date, but really meet someone exactly. that you can really do something. Yeah. yeah. And do you live in the same place? Is it going to be easy? Yeah. Like there are so many things that need to match up and actually like the chances 
when you whistle it, like really, really small. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're so small. It's a wonder anyone yeah. gets born, you know, yeah. like it's insane. <laughs> um, okay, finally, we have to talk about your third love, uh, who is a musician who you admit to not really knowing that much about. But I suspect that's not true. But tell us why you've chosen Paul Simon. Yeah, no, I actually, I really don't know very much about him. I know he's had a couple of wives and he was with Carrie Fisher for a bit, um, which is cool. But um, I just find that like, do you ever have this where with musicians where they just keep coming to you and finding you at the right time in your life? Um, and first of all, I think the way he writes is how I would love to be able to write. Like I, because I think you can tell from his lyrics that he's like, writing to amuse himself almost like you can call me Al is such a bonkers song like, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. but it, it's always this thing where he is writing in this way that's kind of a bit mad and but when you drill down into it it actually makes total sense you know that thing where he, he looks around and around and he sees angels and the architecture and spinning in infinity and like that's what that sort of is thing of being in a new place and looking up and that's how it feels and I remember years ago I went to Graceland Elvis's house and um, I that song Graceland meant an enormous amount to me because it was the favourite song of my friend who at the time was dying and is now dead um, and it was a song that we always like sang together and, and it was a really meaningful but um, I was in Graceland and I was thinking about that song and there's a line in that song that says um, uh, I'm looking at ghosts and empty sockets I'm talking about ghosts and empties and I thought it was so weird because like you're walking through Graceland and it's like a historical site mm. but it's also from the 1970s do you know what I mean yeah, it's like it's so weird because yeah. in this continent we're so used to old things and like walking through palaces and castles and old structures but America's so new and so young and it also it doesn't have like um it doesn't have an Arthur's seat or a mm. Stonehenge yeah. really because it destroyed all of that yeah. <laughs> like with yeah. its genocide against yeah. the Native Americans they don't know anything <laughs> yeah. about it they're yeah. just like here's the stuff we've made mm -hmm. and so it's like it's so weird to walk through a house that's like a, a spiritual place where people come together and like cry and like feel things but also you're looking at electrical plugs in the walls it's so weird and like like and and it's, it was weird to be like oh Paul Simon thought it was weird too <laughs> you know yeah. and and I just think that that's so incredible and then when I was writing the Rachel incident, um, it was such a hard time to just get out of bed, you know, because it was, you could, you could have not put on clothes without a whole period of time and no one would have known. And that lack of accountability was, was really eating away at the souls of people. Like it was just a slobby, sad time. Yeah, yeah. And um, I remember finding the song Cecilia, which is Cecilia, you're breaking my heart. I love it so much and it just like I used to play it every single morning when I sat down to my desk to write Rachel and to get me in the mood and just sort of like like a bit like the pickles just yeah. like get my sort of blood flowing and my heart pumping and like able to feel joyful about the world and I feel like I wouldn't be able to he's like my greatest writing inspiration even though I don't know anything about him and he also he's just like gotten me through a lot of difficult points in my life. Yeah, I mean, I loved what you said about him when we asked you who your loves are. You said how he's an artist that can both rise to meet me in my sadness, but also cheer me up and force me outside, outside yeah. of the house and outside of myself. And I, I really love what you wrote because I think it really captures, A, what is so brilliant about your brain and the way that you write, 
But I also really related to it because, you know, like I said, as someone who writes and spends a lot of time in their own house talking to their cat and in their own head, writing is quite a maddening thing. It's it's a very Mm -hmm. isolating thing. You spend a lot of time alone in your own thoughts, in your own head, ruminating on things, inventing things, drawing from, you know, emotional truths and things that have happened to you. How do you go about doing that and maintaining a modicum of... A, sanity and B, just like reality and like a sense of what's going on outside of the house and outside yeah. of your head. How how else do you kind of navigate that? It's it's tough, isn't it? Because I find that like, yeah, when I'm when I'm sitting down with the work, like I really I really enjoy our job, you know. Mm. I'm you know It's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. amazing. And 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 I but th- dragging yourself away can be hard, mm. but what is worse when the job is not does not feel like it's good for you mm-hmm. is when you're you're out and you're in nature and like you talk to your cat i want my dog you know that's how i yeah. um decompress or whatever and uh i can't think of anything but myself you know yeah. it's, it's not even that i'm thinking intensely about the characters or like what's gonna happen next or mm-hmm. setting i'm just like you know answering fake interview questions in my head i'm like imagining like controversies that may arise after my dealing with an issue in a book i'm like i'm it's just this fucking endless self-involved boring self-chatter that is like the it's like hannah horvat to the power yeah. of like your worst self you yeah. know, it's like that's when i don't like it when you can feel yourself stepping outside the imaginative creative process and instead you're in this weird ego spiral of like well i see so and so on instagram has gotten some kind of list that I haven't yeah, got yeah, like yeah, that yeah. is gross and yeah. not good yeah it's awful I think it's so but it's so easy to get seduced into that kind of world and then it yeah. becomes like a downward spiral and it's not just being stuck in your head it's also like you said being on Instagram and looking at what other writers yeah. are doing and comparing it to yourself and it's like I think you really need very kind of sturdy tools to get you out of your own head totally and, and like for me, the only thing that really does that is exercise. I think exercise is a really good yeah, thing. Yeah, it's great. Because it just yeah. forces you to think of something else and you're thinking about your body. I try to meditate. I've never really been able to. No, I nor wish I. I was like, oh, I just meditate on this and the other. <laughs> yeah. You just can't do that. But even like it's really hard when you're exercising to not go yeah. back to that space in your head. Like it's, di- I find that... um I've sort of gone on a kind of a intermittent fasting with social media where I... I'm allowed to have Instagram on Thursdays and part of Sunday. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> you know, sometimes I break it, but I try and yeah. like limit it basically. And then I just delete Instagram for the yeah. rest of the week and re-download it when I need to post about the podcast, right. for example. Um, I get I, There's times when I'm good at it and times when I'm bad at it. And um, also it's like th- th- I, need to, I need to be dieted with podcasts as well. Because there is definitely, I am really waiting for the study to come out that really says that like podcasts are making people depressed. Interesting. What do you think? It's because we're constantly listening to something and not. Yeah, I think I think music is better for you than yeah. podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. if we're going to rank distraction techniques yeah, yeah, or whatever, yeah. I think list, bouncing around listening to Paul Simon or whatever and like thinking about angels and the architecture is probably a more mentally healthy process than like I'm going to listen to two women in America review Romy and Michelle's high school reunion 
like and just like why because yeah. and I realize that I'm creating this content as well but yeah, I also yeah, think yeah. that I get into when I'm in not in great mental spaces I just chain these things and I'm not really yeah listening that's what it to is. it yeah. I'm just I just like the chatter in my ear yeah I'm not I'm not really committing to listening to it. I'm not really thinking my own thoughts either. I'm just in this nether space of floating yeah. around my neighborhood, not feeling great about my life or the world. Yeah, well, that's what I think the problem is, is if you're constantly outsourcing things and you're constantly yeah. looking for distractions, you're not sitting with, you know, just... You're not really achieving deep thought on no, anything. and you're not really present in any moment. Yeah. You're constantly elsewhere, whether it's like in another person's conversation or yeah. know, whatever. And it, 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 I don't think that is good for your brain. No, no. I, I'm trying to more and more now um, when I go on like walk the dog, like ringing someone. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is probably a big help even yeah. though it feels like we're getting further and further away from yeah chatting on the phone it's weird it shouldn't see, like i know when I, whenever i go for a walk if i don't listen to music and i don't listen to a podcast and i don't call my mom i'm like oh i'm quite proud of myself i just did i just i, walked. I know total silence it's pathetic it's a strange world we live in yeah anyway that is that is all we've got time for thank you so oh, this much this has been Caroline. so good i've loved it's been it so nice to talk to you that's it for today thank you so much for joining us you can listen to love lives on all major podcast platforms you can also watch us on independent tv and all social media platforms and on all major connected devices i will see you soon bye